Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, David Brown, and Rob Sheffield. We're going to be talking about the Super Bowl because I love sports so much. I know everything about sports. I know many facts about the Super Bowl, like who's playing. Don't even test me. But I think just to maybe fit more in the theme of this show, as much as I'd like to talk about sports for an hour, I think we're actually going to be talking about musical performances on the Super Bowl and the best and worst ones, which uh, Rob Sheffield, of course, did the definitive list of the best and worst Super Bowl performances. And there have been some great ones and some unbelievably horrible ones when you consider the impact of this show. It's incredible how horrible some of these performances have been. I think on that note, we should start with the Black Eyed Peas in 2011. (laughs) As dire as really the whole performance was, there is one moment in it that cannot be surpassed. But just to build up to it, so Black Eyed Peas just performed some Black Eyed Peas stuff. It was already kind of going off the rails at the beginning when you see Fergie attempt this dance move that's just basically like she sort of shuffles back and forth in this uncertain, unsteady way, then does it again, and then looks really proud of herself. It's really bizarre. But then about a couple minutes in, we hear this. All right. I can explain this. Okay? I can explain this. I know what they were thinking. They were thinking it's a hip hop year. We need to appeal to rock fans. So who embodies rock or any person on the planet? Slash. And Slash always says yes. So let's just bring Slash in. Now, remember what Axel's critique of Slash was back when they were estranged, which is that he cheapened his talent by playing with everyone from Space Ghost to whoever. And, you know, Axel, looking back, may have had a point. The YouTube comments on this are just, you know, you can imagine what they're like. And then there's one guy who's like, well, at least they weren't lip syncing, which is a a good point, at least. Although I think if there's one performance that shows the virtues of pre-recorded vocals, it might be that one. I think the standard thing on halftime shows is the music. It is pre-recorded, and the vocals are often live, which can be a huge problem if you're Roger Daltrey or Fergie or something. Rob, you seem still pretty traumatized by this performance. What do you take away it from was, it? You know, when they started doing the Dirty Dancing love theme, I've had the time of my life, I said, wow, the Black Eyed Peas are doing I've had the time of my life. This might be the most horrible thing I've heard in my life. And then Slash enters the scene, and it was traumatizing. I actually want to take a side note, because I've been obsessed with this point. In Dirty Dancing, which is set in, like, what, 1960? or something? Yeah, they're about. 63. Yeah, 63. And they are dancing in the movie to music that has audible drum machine in it. And that bothers me so much. It's deranged. Does that bother you, Rob? I have to say, it does not bother me. It, it does not bother it's me. It's impossible. I love there's even the joke when he says, I got to get the sheet music for this song. <laughs> there could not be a more made in the 80s song. Yet the fact that really of all the songs on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, Fergie and Slash did Love is Strange. That would have been much cooler. <laughs> if they did Be My Baby, that would have been awesome. But I had the time of my life. That was not the time of mine. And then Sweet Child of Mine. And you know, Fergie, she's trying. Fergie always always tries, always works it. I give Fergie full points for effort. I would have to blame the other Black Eyed Peas. Quite frankly, I was a big fan of Fergie's solo career, and I always thought the Black Eyed Peas kind of held her back. Interesting. Not Fergie's finest moment, but, you know. <laughs> <Definitely> <laughs> so there were a lot of other 
performances that are truly baffling to me. There was one that I actually found offensive, I have to admit, which is I had forgotten until I read Rob's piece that in 1997, the Blues Brothers, or the purported Blues Brothers, because there's no John Belushi, headlined the Super Bowl halftime show. And they sang like Solomon Burke songs and stuff. And their special guest, briefly, was the actual James Brown. And, you know, you can say people are too woke now or whatever, but one of the good things about 2019 is there's no way that shit would ever happen now. And it's really offensive. You had the actual James Brown, and not to mention Solomon Burke was alive and well. Like, why not have the actual people who made this music perform it? Like, what the hell was that? When you have a shot at Jim Belushi, you don't turn that down. (laughs) It's like, James Brown, you can wait, you know? Also, just the sheer number of people who are alive at that time who are soul legends who are no longer with us. There's no need to go through the really sad list of names of people who could have been there singing these songs instead of, it cannot be repeated often enough, Jim Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, and John Goodman, all of whom have done great things in their career. Two out of three of them have done great things in their career. (laughs) This was something they should have known was not a very James Brown I would think that the logic at the time was that the big sequel is coming out soon, that Blues Brothers 2000 will be even bigger than the first one, so let's go big on the Blues Brothers. Wait, did Blues Brothers 2000 come out in 1997? Thanks. So, it didn't right? come out in 2000? No, it was before it was, I think it was, it was like before 2000. Or yeah, it was, yeah, it things was, are getting like, named for 2000 long before the fact. <laughs> yeah, there was like the Willennium, there's all kinds of stuff that was happening. <laughs> Let's take a step back. As you point out, Rob, it took them a very long time to realize that they could do anything really with this slot, with this slot that the whole world was watching. Really strange to think that like well into the 80s when the Super Bowl is getting more high stakes every year, that it took them so long to realize that just putting anything, even if it's terrible at halftime, you know, besides, you know, a marching band or an Elvis impersonator or Carol Channing, RIP, but all the stuff that they had up with people every year that they just had no idea that people were watching this and this was space they could actually use rather than just like letting it slide. And then 1992 in Living Color do their live comedy special and that completely changed the world in so many ways and everybody switched away to see in Living Color do these football themed sketches live and just the idea of doing that was just really shocking. And then there's Beavis and Butthead which did the butt ball which I remember watching as mm. opposed to halftime. So the battle for that was for viewers became huge so they felt really compelled to go big to compete with Beavis and Butthead in Living Color. American culture was so strange <laughs> and it <laughs> remains you know there's a year that was pretty good Gloria Stefan and Stevie Wonder and I was watching this performance and it's not Gloria Stefan's only Super Bowl performance she actually did several but so it was 1999 the beginning of this performance is one of the most baffling things. Maybe someone could explain to me what the hell was going on. I never had seen it before this week and I was genuinely unsettled by it. Let's hear that the very beginning. Miami and that this halftime is going to be a party Miami style. Hola, Gloria. E.T., you haven't changed a bit! Okay, so that deeply scary thing was E.T. saying hola, Gloria. Why was E.T. there? Maybe it was the E.T. Beloved American icon. Maybe it was the E.T. Was it the E.T. re-release? That wasn't until a few years later. When you think of partying Miami style, you think of (laughs) E.T. It's terrifying. I don't know what that was. They brought it back into theaters, but that was probably at like the Twitter That was later. Days. Anyway, that was frightening. But yeah, contrast that with the Ben Stiller intro to the InSync Aerosmith one, which I think was one of the best intros, that parody of him as like there. We're jumping around. That's one of the great ones as 
Rob points out, that was always my favorite. And Brittany in her Aerosmith t-shirt and the sock on the hand is one of the indelible Super Bowl images. Yes. It was very MTV. It was a like VMA style show where she sings Walk This Way with a sock on her arm with Aerosmith and NSYNC. It was a Rob Sheffield just like sensational thing for you, right? Yeah, it was kind of a fever dream brought to life. <laughs> it's like, oh, there's Nelly. There's Mary J. Blige. How could this just keep getting more awesome? <laughs> and Ben Stiller going, that insect. <laughs> Rob points out that or theorizes that Britney's role was she was, in fact, the Missy who was ready to play from Walk This Way, that that was the role she was playing, which I enjoyed yeah, very much. I interviewed Steven Tyler a few days later, and he said that he really wanted Britney to sing the line, you ain't seen nothing till you're down on a muffin. But she was not going near that one. <laughs> I would uh, pay money to watch the behind the scenes interactions of Steven Tyler and a 20 year old Britney Spears. <laughs> it's a little bit ominous. I don't know. And Nelly was there. And that was a moment that really captured the zeitgeist of that year of 2001. And if they all could be that good, I would support fully the yeah. Super Bowl experience. And they were headed in that direction till the Janet thing happened when they made a huge course correction. Well, basically, what was going on is that producers from MTV were actually actually handling it. It yeah. literally was an MTV thing. And then after Janet and Justin, that was it. They're like, we're going back to classic rock. Yeah. Paul McCartney was the following year. A huge change. It was like just McCartney as opposed to like Aerosmith and Britney and NSYNC and Nelly. Then it was just McCartney. Without belaboring, let's talk about Janet and Justin for a minute. Was that performance working for you until the line that you used was, you've seen the nipple and the damage done, which I guess you credited to one of our beloved Yeah, editors. Will Dana. Absolutely. He insisted that be used every time that that was ever Ever covered. Anytime we ever mentioned that Super Bowl incident, it was always the nipple and the damage done. But was that performance doing anything for you until that moment? It's kind of hard to say in retrospect. I wasn't watching it live. It was my birthday that year, as, as it often is on the Super Bowl. <laughs> And so after the game, I called my dad to congratulate him because, you know, my folks are Patriots fans. And I pretended that I'd watched the game and I hadn't. And the first thing my dad said on the phone, talking to his son on his birthday after his team just won the Super Bowl is, did you see the halftime show? And I said, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. And he's like, yeah, you know, what did you think? Was that on purpose or was it an accident? And I said, I'm really out of my depth here. Like, <laughs> and when I went back and watched it, you can see why it was a moment that shocked the world. So was it on purpose or was it an accident? What do we think here? I think it was an accident. What do you think? Honestly, when you watch it, it looks very on purpose. I kind of always thought it was on purpose. Everybody involved seems to agree it was an accident, but you watch it and there was no way for anybody at home not to know that was on purpose. It looked very on purpose as it played on TV. I think it looked that way because he was meant to pull it back and reveal a bra, right? That's the story. Yes, right. which that's why it seems to be so on purpose. I believe them. Do you think if that happened now, it would be just as big a deal or actually people would just kind of like shrug it off, assuming it hadn't happened or, before? Or do you think he would suffer more than her now? I do think people would be more conscious of unfairly blaming her, that's for sure. I think he would get more grief now than he did. Let's jump momentarily, since we're talking about controversy, to what's going on with Maroon 5 right now. Some people who are listening to this by the time it's a podcast, this will have happened. Maroon 5 will play the Super Bowl. It's not a very anticipated performance. They're taking a lot of flack for playing the Super Bowl at all. And I think going forward, this may be a huge problem. It is going to be a huge problem for the NFL because the brand is so tarnished and there's a, an ongoing protest over the brand. And so it's going to be hard for them to get music stars to play it. You know, Beyonce certainly not going to be playing it anytime soon. And Maroon 5 don't seem to know what hit them. 
there was an interview and he looks like a truck hit him. He he didn't seem to know how controversial this would be. Yeah, because their whole brand is to not be offensive, to be palatable to a very mainstream audience. And now they're cornered in this huge controversy that they didn't expect. And so their press conference got canceled. It's all been very carefully managed. They didn't even announce them as the headliners until like last week or something, right? I mean, it's been known for months, but it was not made official. So it's been a very weird thing. And they can't get many of their guest stars on their biggest songs to come sing with them. I wonder if next year they go sort of right-wing country or something because that's the only direction they can go in. <laughs> was there ever a controversy like this before a halftime show? Afterwards, we no, know Justin and Janet, etc. MIA and, the, and Flipping the Bird, but I can't remember one beforehand. No, right? The idea that playing the Super Bowl would be an inherently like offensive, it's like hosting the Oscars. It's something that seemed like a high-prestige gift until this year. Right. It's unfathomable that it's difficult to find people willing to do it. Maybe Maroon no. 5 will host the Oscars. <laughs> I think Slash they, they will be available e- for next yeah, year's yeah. Super Bowl. Yeah. Fergie and Slash will host the Oscars with E.T. <laughs> Until the NFL resolves this image that they're racially insensitive, it's going to be a big problem going forward. Yeah, I think that they'll have to go slumming and like book Bon Jovi finally or something. And, and, I mean, there haven't been that many country acts who've played at this, right? I mean, no, and not much surprisingly much. few. Yeah. Very yeah. strange. And few. not much right, hip-hop right. either. It's right, been very right. for... Yeah, but I can see them going full country after this year possibly very strange. You know, a way to get yeah I, it is very strange I look Brian how your close personal friend Roger Waters has weighed in on this controversy a man whose opinions about anything NFL related are instantly <laughs> headline making I like how he has stepped in and urged Maroon 5 to stage a protest on live TV it makes you wish that Roger Waters really should be playing this gig does Roger think they should be protesting Israel or Black Lives Matter Probably everything. But he thinks that Moon 5 should take a knee during the performance. I have to say, it's not a bad idea. I think it's an Entertainment Tonight interview with Adam Levine. I've spent some time with him, and he's the most fun, upbeat, sort of no-worries person. And he looks drawn, haggard, and terrified. He may be worried this is the worst decision he's ever made in his life. It would save their image if they did something protesty. But for all we know, by the time people are hearing this on the podcast, people will be like, well, you know, something insane may have happened. We, we can't help it. We don't know what's going to happen. And to go back to Andy's yeah. point, I mean, they really do want to be the least offensive pop group of all time. So to take a knee for them, that would be a major step on his part. But you know what? It actually might not be received that well because people will be like, we don't want you to take a knee. We want you to not play. We want no it's, one to yeah, play. It's a right, lose-lose. Right. Who would think that playing the Super Bowl would be a lose-lose? You know, it's really strange. Until this year, there's never really been a controversy before well, the Justin, fact Justin, Actually, Justin last year, there were the yes. rumors about the Prince tribute wasn't going to be the right Prince tribute or he shouldn't, right, he shouldn't be tributing him at all given that Prince didn't like him. And I was arguing over the word hologram, which yeah, the hologram. becomes such a hugely meaningless <laughs> word that they denied in a bit that there would be a Prince hologram because it was just a video. It's like, nobody cares about the difference. If you're showing a giant Prince on a screen singing, I would die for you, worst possible Prince song, arguably, to do at this moment, that's a hologram. Yeah, there was sort of a like a Trump press office level of denial, like this angry denial, like it is so offensive that you think we would have a Prince hologram. Then there's a flat image of Prince on a curtain. So yeah. Yes. Janet Jackson had to issue a press release before the Super Bowl saying that she was absolutely not showing up. Before we get to some of the truly great ones in this category includes it let's talk about the classic rock era that sort of followed the 
Janet and Justin debacle because as we were saying they panicked and went back to sort of the safest thing they could think of and there were some great performances that came out of that era yeah they did the biggest ones possible first they did Paul McCartney who did a huge medley of all his hits and as Rob pointed out it was really fun and unexpected that he started with Drive My Car I wonder what his thinking was on that it seemed really spontaneous and it seemed almost like you can imagine him just like calling out the songs to the band as they go on because the selection is really random you know he's not doing what you would expect nobody would have guessed drive my car is the beginning song but really perfect and really kicked it off in perfect spirits he just kind of came out and did his paul mccartney thing what did you make of that yeah i mean i don't love these medleys that they do sometimes when they do like 30 seconds of a song i find that a bit irritating i prefer the stones thing where just like three songs and that's it but paul was totally good let's hear a little bit of that can't you see i want to be famous a star of the screen So, and that went on for a while after Paul. They did the obvious next step and got the Rolling Stones. And that performance is incredible. It was very good, though they do play Rough Justice, which is not their best song, perhaps. I actually love that song. Okay, but in their top three songs to play in a set. It's my favorite Rolling Stones song of all time. Okay? Yeah. It was good that it wasn't You Got Me Rockin', which is the one they usually bust out on these occasions. So it was a good deep cut. And and that sounds like a name dropper here, but the night that that was on, I was actually in a studio with Sonic Youth researching they were recording they were recording rather ripped and i was doing some book research and there was a tv in the lounge and everybody took a break to watch that and there was a, a bemused thing but they kept calling it thurston was like oh they're doing some song called rock justice and i actually thought that was a better title and he, he, he just he just misheard it it's yeah. like it's rock justice yeah. oh my god that, that's just a sonic youth kind of title too. that should be like a david bochco tv show like a, a cop a cop rock yeah, yeah, like Rock Justice. Yes, Rock Justice, or it could be like sort of a musical TV show starring the Justice League. I'm really, I'm really excited about the possibilities here. Let's hear a little bit of the Stones if we can. As you said in a minute, but the energy of like Mick, he's in better shape than some of the players. Yeah. So there you go. And what's funny, in the post-Janet era, that they got some shit for the lyric in that song, you'll make a dead man come. That I remember that as a small controversy at the time. Yeah, what was the use of the offended word? Yes. Not the concept, which is just, you know, it's not like, you know. Honestly, <laughs> it's never not weird to hear that song on the radio. Start Me Up is one of the Stone songs you hear constantly, and it's never not weird to hear that. And like... DJs just don't know it's there and they don't fade it out early. It's like sexual healing or something where there's something at the very end of the song, at the very end of the fade out. I mean, there's a long list of lyrics that you don't want to spend too much time really thinking hard about, but that is definitely high up. It always amazed me when uh, Jefferson Starship's Miracles. I had a taste of the real world when I blah, 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 that line got on the radio. R.I.P. Marty Balin. (laughs) Absolutely. That might have been one of the high points of his crazy (laughs) career is that he got that song. 
And that line, just, that just, was a top ten song. I, I have it to was. be honest with you. I have no idea what you're talking about. What's the lyric? Just say it. I had a taste of the real world when I went down on you. No kidding. Girl, when I went down on you, girl. Went so down on you, girl. Okay. That's, and also, and, and then Grace Slick is behind him, going just a little bit, yeah, just, just a taste a drop of it. of it, just a drop of it. Yeah. Sorry, just a drop, a drop of it. it. It's like unbelievable. Like, it's a combo of like that's yeah. too. It's that's, amazing. That starship went to strange places. <laughs> with the, the very strange sort of like '70s divorced mom spider plant era of Jefferson Starship is <laughs> really fascinating. If you write the airplane and starship out of that story and just consider Jefferson Starship, it's completely bizarre that this band existed having routinely <laughs> top 10 hits with stuff like that in it. And that song yeah. is like eight minutes long. They had yeah. more hits than the airplane did. Like, yeah, by did. far. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I- I've said this before, but I wish all bands had never broken up, but just kept transforming themselves in that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then in the 80s, they were even bigger. <laughs> that was their biggest decade by far. So interrupting oh. the classic rock <laughs> in 2007 was Prince. Yeah. And I think that's my favorite Super Bowl performance of all time. It was just unbelievable. Yeah, I love the story told by the producers when they go to the dressing room and they go, Prince, bad news, it's pouring rain out there. Then he goes, do you think it's possible to make it rain harder? (laughs) 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 That he loved it. And he just crushed it. In the pissing rain, he just destroyed the place. It's weird to explain to people that there were times in Prince's life when he was underrated. There were times when people forgot briefly that he was one of the greatest live performers who ever lived. It was it was sort of like Bowie in that he never stopped. There's so many albums, there were so many tours that there are many periods in which he was just taken for granted, just completely. And then that would happen. And then the whole world would be, holy shit, Prince. Also talk about what an unpredictable experience when he starts doing the Foo Fighters cover. (laughs) It's like, wow, Prince is not taking input from anybody (laughs) on what he's going to do. Really a shocking performance, no matter how many times you watch it. Was that close to the time when he did Creep at Coachella? Was that around the same time? I think it was a couple years before, maybe, but it was right around that. I've seen Dave Grohl talk about it. He was watching it, and he goes, holy shit, he's doing my song? What the fuck is happening? (laughs) 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 Then the Foo Fighters, did they do Darling Nikki as a response to that? I think so, maybe. Anyway, let's hear a little bit of Prince. Outside in the cold distance A wildcat did ground And what's amazing is he did All on the Watchtower in a different Hendrix style. Yeah. <laughs> it's a perfectly plausible other way that Jimi Hendrix might have done All on the Watchtower, which is so f- next level. That's yeah. an amazing point. It's basically an Axis Bold is Love yes. version of <laughs> All on the I Watchtower. I mean, that is so deep to get yeah. to that point. Yeah. Hendrix would have heard that and been like, oh man, like, that would be great too. Maybe that's better. That's crazy. I mean, that. So we had that. And then the next year, Tom Petty. I spoke with Petty a few weeks before this, and he heavily implied that the Eagles got asked first and then pulled out at the last minute, which sort of forced them like to scramble and book <laughs> Petty. But Petty used it as an excuse to launch a huge tour, which would often happen, that your tour dates are announced the following morning and it sells out, basically. Yeah, in that way, the Super Bowl kind of lucked out in the post-Justin Janet era and that you suddenly had this whole bunch of classic rockers who really had to promote what they were doing in this new century. And record stores, Tower Records was closing, and you know you had James Taylor on QVC plugging his new album. And like you know, I talked to one of the Super Bowl guys who I 
after the Bruce thing. And yeah, he said like he was on his way home a few days after the Petty Super Bowl and like Bruce's manager calls him. Hey, we're interested. Yeah. And he was like stunned. And, but, but Bruce had a new album coming out. He even yeah. did it in the press, press conference. they toured the previous year and he wanted to go back on tour the following year. And to do that and play big venues, they needed the juice of a Super Bowl. Bruce. What I do love about it, and what was so cool about Tom Petty, is he brought the same kind of take-it-or-leave-it laconic energy to the Super Bowl that he brought to everything. He was not going to be sliding across the stage, you know? No. But, but something I love about Tom Petty's Super Bowl performance, we've talked about all these classic rockers that they brought out, but he was not an old English guy. He was someone who actually was clearly an American who knew <laughs> what the point. Super Bowl <laughs> was <laughs> and knew what his job was, which we could name aging English classic rockers we're gonna get not, there yeah. yeah we'll get yeah, there yeah. but i could see springsteen being inspired by that but actually having you know people who grew up knowing what the football was and <laughs> what the nfl was and, and what the super bowl was so tom petty he exactly knew absolutely knew what to do and he did not waste a minute of it i think this is one of the greats Every Tom Petty song is so much more emotional now. It's so it's, sad. It's rough, man. It's, I almost wish we hadn't played it. I'm all messed up now. <laughs> so, all right, 2009, Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band. And one thing that's interesting is Bruce himself wrote this very, very vivid mini memoir about the experience of rehearsing and performing for the Super Bowl. And it actually is one of the pieces of writing that sparked his book. It's where he found the voice and it's worth reading. And what isn't necessarily clear just from watching it, because it is very entertaining, it's not quite the best, but it's in the top 10 of Super Bowl performances, as Rob put it. But what you don't quite get from watching is how much it meant to Bruce and the band. Because you kind of think of these guys like, oh, you know, they've had their careers at that point. They don't really need affirmation. But for him, it really felt like a capper because one of the things he, he liked the idea of like everyone watching yeah. black and white, young and old and trying to reach out to everyone. I love the image. Uh, I'll just say in, in this little memoir is like he flew back home that night, of course, because he's Bruce Springsteen. You don't, you don't bother staying. You just fly back. And then late at night, he was on his farm and he set a bonfire and he's looking out at the stars and just kind of like feeling it. Like, I guess maybe it's like there's times even when you're Bruce Springsteen, you need to feel your success sort yeah. of. And maybe he really felt it that night. Right. And for all these people. It's the biggest audience that they'll ever play to by a long shot. The entire country is watching you, which is the only time that can possibly happen in this day and age. That the Super Bowl is the last piece almost of like the monoculture. Yeah, so. for sure. Rob, I feel like you were going to say something. You were An doing... amazing performance. Loved reading David's history of, of this Springsteen performance. David, tell us what you learned in your piece that you just did about this. He had a new record coming out at that point, working on Dream, and it was a different climate out there in the world. And so they were much more open to the idea of doing it. And some of that stuff, he changed some lyrics to insert, you know, mentioning the Super Bowl in a couple of the songs. Glory and, days, yeah. Yeah, and apparently those were like some of his ideas and some of the producers during rehearsals suggested the referee part, the referee running out at the end and the overtime moves and all that, all the gestures. I'm not a football guy either. <laughs> but uh, but that was suggested by the NFL people. Bruce loved the idea. It was a real collaborative effort on his part and, and you can kind of feel that in that performance. It was one of the times that there's a lot of tones struck in a Springsteen show, and sometimes it's like ferocious intensity, but there's also this really goofy side. And that performance did allow for some of that, that kind of clowning. Right. If you read the Clarence Clemens book, which is a pretty lousy book, but he's a chapter about it, and he says 
that they went to Terminal 5 and rehearsed for days on end on a stopwatch. And they're getting it to the very second. It was playing Born to Run over and over and over again. It was driving the band crazy, but Bruce wanted it to be so precise and just so perfect. And it was the first steps that Clarence took after his surgery. It was on that stage. He was in a wheelchair until that night. They struck this sort of iconic Born to Run pose on right, stage, which, which I think watching it now, again, has a very different impact. Yeah. And it's it's great that they did that while Clarence was still with us, actually. Yeah. That's really cool. And then everyone made a big deal about Bruce sliding into the camera. Right. You it know? Was, was like the crotch slide. That was the moment, which is a big deal the following morning. It was also a moment for me when I started to feel in the culture a pushback against older artists in a way that has now reached its full fruition. There was a little bit of a like, people were starting to get mad at so many classic rock artists and holding that against the Bruce Springsteen thing and calling him a dad and stuff. Maybe I was naive, but it was the first time I was like, not everyone is down with this, which is, you know, it is what it is. It's the passage of time. It's inevitable. Yeah. If a song like Glory Days is on your screen and you're 14, you're like, where the hell is like Kanye West? I'm watching Glory Days now. This is like some dad video from the 80s. I have to see on my TV right now. And we didn't hear any Bruce, so let's hear some Bruce before we move on if we can. There's something wrong with me because he's he's perfectly well and I'm getting emotional at that too. <laughs> I had the exact same thing. Wow. Yeah. What's going on? I had the exact same thing. I was just so profoundly moved that I don't know what it is. I guess I just want Bruce tour, please. <laughs> it's like maybe that's all it is. We're gonna uh, hear but that also again. because yeah. that's become the memorial to Clarence yes, part of the yeah, show. That, that's that, what, that's, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was but we were in the classic rock era, which hilariously the classic rock era of the Super Bowl was 2005 <laughs> through 2010. <laughs> classic rock's absolute peak in the culture. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so bizarre. Here is the actual end of the classic rock era, which was in 2010 with The Who. And something went wrong here. What well, happened, guys? It was very unfortunate timing in that Roger Daltrey's voice was going through major problems that would require surgery soon, but he didn't quite realize it yet. So their big plan... It was to play this and then launch a big tour from it. But his voice was so screwed up that it was canceled. So at the biggest stage of their whole career was his worst voice ever. It's horrific timing. And we were talking earlier, and, and Rob was mentioning Tom Petty and how much you know, an American rock star would know the importance of the Super Bowl. I'm not sure the Who realized this because I did a story about the making of this. And the first thing I did was talk to some NFL people who were all excited. We got the Who. We can't wait, blah, blah, blah. And they said, oh, we sent DVDs to Pete and Roger of all the previous halftime shows so they could get in the mood and, and know what we're doing. And I said, OK. So then I interviewed Pete and Roger afterwards separately. And I said, so I heard you got some DVDs and you watch them. And they both laughed and said, no, <laughs> we, of course, why would we do that? <laughs> Okay, so it was nine years after their last sort of triumphant TV performance, which was at the 9-11 show. Right. And they probably thought, we got this. Like, they probably barely rehearsed for that one either. Yeah, they, they rehearsed that day, like that afternoon, the Who did uh, for that. <laughs> Which is crazy. It's I mean, crazy. Like Springsteen, it was like 10 days of rehearsal. And they tried to play five songs, which is too many. So they just played bits of them. And it was just a freaking train wreck. They aren't a band that should do a medley. I remember your interview with Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey, and they said they'd never watched 
an American football game and kind of had no idea what the sport was. And they you would went... think somebody would have told them. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, like filled them in a yes, little. Yes, Springsteen and Petty went into this knowing, you know, with very different ideas of what their job was, but they knew what they wanted to do. And the who, like you said, they thought it was just like a live TV medley. The idea that they only rehearsed that afternoon is just stunning to me. And we've talked way too much actually on this show about why young people hate the who it hurts my feelings, but I just realized that this is why yeah. <laughs> it can't have helped. Yeah. I mean, just imagine being like 12 years old and watching this, you're like, what the hell is happening here? And Who's he's kind of wheezing through the songs. It's what people's kind of cartoon is of aging rockers attempting to do their old songs. Yeah. He starts off and does Pinball Wizard quite well. Although, as, yeah. as I was saying, it shows how off they were that Pete actually flubs a bit of the Pinball Wizard intro. It's like, how do you be Pete Townsend and not play that exactly right? So they were half-assing the biggest performance of their really. entire career, which I guess is, you know, it's pretty punk rock, I guess. At least Roger kept his shirt button oh wait <laughs> <laughs> but on the what is it the 12 12 12 concert i think he took off all his clothes <laughs> he's just yeah, got naked he yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's how i remember it i mean did a bunch of deep cuts from quadrophenia that was that was another not really yeah. knowing what the moment was they played bellboy at 12 12 12 yeah so it's like seriously they played bellboys that's the one song in their whole catalog that's sang by keith moon <laughs> and they, they still really play bellboy yes. yeah they had keith moon on a video screen <laughs> yeah. they absolutely had no idea where they were or what event they were part of. Well, this, the Who this, not taking live American TV at all seriously in, in the years when it could have done them a huge favor. This is the same judgment that led Roger at a recent Forest Hills show to tell a long story. The punchline of was that he abandoned his first family for rock and roll, and aren't we all glad of that? It was horrifying. <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a true story. It's like, but in the end, I think it was for the best. Anyway, here's Substitute. It was so crazy. So anyway, we should talk about some of the greatest ones in recent years. Donna, Beyonce, especially Lady Gaga. The Beyonce performance is just stunning. Visually, it, it's the same kind of work ethic and brilliance that she brought to something like her Coachella performance. Like, she is not messing around. She most assuredly did not show up that afternoon and rehearse <laughs> for an hour. What did you make of the Beyonce performance? It was fantastic. Just in terms of like Beyonce, also like it's weird to think that there was a moment where Beyonce was underrated, but this was right before she became Beyonce as we know her now. She had yet to release her big surprise self-titled album, which she was probably making while she did this, which is so shocking. So it's funny that like pre-2013 Beyonce is still, she's on the way up. So this was a performance that was just astounding. Yeah, and then when Coldplay played a few years later, it just suddenly became a second Beyonce performance, right? She <laughs> yeah. took over the whole thing. Nobody Which was actually remembers the, the Coldplay were there for that one. Yes. <laughs> you go back and watch it, and it's, wait, there's about 30 seconds of Beyonce here, and like, and half of that is her being forced to duet with Bruno Mars. Like, It's like Coldplay were supposed to be the headlines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were sort of the Blues Brothers in that scenario, <laughs> yeah. a little, yeah. little, just a little bit. And then Gaga was a very triumphant performance. That was great. And it, the it, best exit from any of those performances when she jumps off the stage like that. Okay. Yeah. It was the best finale and to also a halftime. Very comparable to Tom Petty, although musically very different, but somebody coming in as a football fan and knowing what she wanted to do. Yeah. She yeah, didn't you, try you for this... anything risky or controversial. She was just straight down the middle and doing it brilliantly. And, and you, you got the sense she was preparing her whole life for that halftime totally. show. Yes, totally. And it was also her reclaiming 
crowd-pleasing, down-the-middle Gaga. It wasn't her. The meat dress was gone. The whole period when she was doing alienating stuff was gone. She was like, and in a way, when you look at the arc of her career, it now kind of works in her favor, maybe, that she had a period of, because everyone has to have that period of when, oh, it seems like you're alienating everyone, you're doing something different, because then it allows the arc of like Super Bowl, Star is Born, and Vegas and whatever's next. So you're saying that that art pop is like her ditch period like when you're young (laughs) (laughs) like her her time fades away yeah (laughs) you gotta have that if you don't have that it's like a stock you gotta take a little dip before you can then arc up again but but also it was her first high profile public success in a minute and it's weird to think now like you know when she's gonna be at the Academy Awards soon but people were surprised that she knocked this one out of the park the way that was the beginning of her please America love me again yeah. I'm not that weird anymore. I'm going to do Tony Bennett, too. It's like that really was step one. Well, yeah. Also, a genuinely moving Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, yeah. right. Good point. Like, when you can actually bring like full-on Gaga showbiz to the Pledge of Allegiance, like that's, you know. There's this line, speaking of Bruce, that John Hammond had about Bruce's first audition for John Hammond to call me. It's like he took his God-given talent and blasted me in the face with it. And that's like, if you have just that... Something like the Super Bowl, if you're Prince or Beyonce or Gaga, it's an opportunity to just be like, check this out. Yeah, you know? and the huge buildup to Gaga, it was about politics. There was a lot of thought that she would do something that was protest. So she flipped it and did the pledge, which was pretty brilliant. So I'm sure that this year's Maroon 5, is it going to be a surprise guest or is it literally going to be Maroon 5? I think they're saying Travis it's Scott Big Boy, is right? going to come out, right? Yeah, Travis Scott and Big Boy. Yeah, right. they wanted Cardi B to Can't, do their big song, but yeah. she wouldn't do it, obviously. Can't wait to see their Twitter mentions on uh, Monday. So we'll see how that goes. You'll have to let us know how that goes, or I guess us in the future will also know, so don't let us know. Anyway, this has been, <laughs> that was a nonsensical thing to say. It's this like is, a Back to the Future Back to the Future, I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. Thanks to David Brown, Rob Sheffield, and Andy Green. David, you have a book coming out. What is the book? I have a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young biography coming out. April 2nd. What's it called? It's called Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, actually. There's a subtitle called The Wild Definitive Song of Rock's Greatest Supergroup. David is the only writer who can make Crosby, Stills, and Nash & Young infallibly fascinating to me. So check out David's book. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast. Subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, thanks for listening. I should say I also have a book coming out, Springsteen, the stories behind the songs. You should check that out too. And we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.